Uh, we have a couple of college students who have come back. I want to welcome you guys back. We're so glad that you're here as well. So we are in kind of the second half of our kind of Advent Christmas series at the end of the year. And uh, the series is called A Son is Given. A Son is Given. And um, what we've been doing and what my hope has been, I talked about this in the very first message of the series, that I'm basically hoping that this very familiar story, the story of Jesus' birth, for maybe the first time in our lives would just kind of blow our minds, that we understand the magnitude of what really happened in that moment. And uh, this series is based on a verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, put that on the screen, it goes like this. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the way we've been trying to approach this story so that we could grasp and experience the weight of what happened that, that moment when Jesus was born onto this earth was by exploring this title, the Son of God. The Son was given. The Son was given. The Son of God or the only begotten Son. And we kind of talked about how it's interesting that um, even though Jesus, we know him as the only begotten son in John chapter 3, verse 16. There are other only begotten sons in the Bible, which is like, what do you mean? That's not something that we, we heard before. But that the phrase or the title of son of God was a very specific title and it meant something really, really important. Now, what I want you guys to understand is that the story of Jesus' birth is not set up for the rest of the story. I think a lot of us take it that way. Oh, it's just the first stage. It's just the first thing that happened. And let's get on to the real story, the real life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where we're at. I want us to understand that it's not just set up. In fact, the story of Jesus' birth is a biblically and theologically monumental moment in the history and the story between God and humanity. And so the goal of this series has been to step back from that one story of a baby and the animals and the wise men and the Bethlehem and the inn and all that stuff, to step back from that and to see that story in its proper place, in its proper context, in light of the covenants. And that's what we talked about that very first message of the series. And then we've kind of built on that last week. Um, and today what we're going to do is we're going to take an even bigger step back. And, you know, maybe it's like, where else could we go? But there's something there. We're going to take another step back, and we're going to uncover another layer, another plot line, another story that this whole story of Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and death and resurrection fits in. Uh, it's, there's going to be a, there is a larger scale contextual picture that we have to understand, because what that does, it provides a different lens or a new framework to help us see how significant the birth of Jesus was. Now, the last two messages, I feel like were really impactful and powerful because they spoke to us personally. There is a real personal, relatable element to those messages. The issue with today, now I've stated clearly that this is my favorite message of the series. The issue is this is not that personal. The reason I'm excited to preach this message is because of how large it is. It, it, the layer that I'm talking about is one that I never thought about, I've never heard about, and to see it in that picture makes it so, so huge, but it's not really like personally going to impact you. So in order for us to, for this to be meaningful, we need to be willing to together take that step back and allow God to kind of blow our minds within that story. We've got to think beyond ourselves. 
We must think beyond ourselves, our own lives, our own issues to see the magnitude of the story today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, I thank you, Lord, for the richness and the beauty and the depths of Scripture and the, the depths of, of theology and the depths of this concept of the Son of God and what we're going to talk about today. As we're uncovering these layers, I pray, God, that you would draw us in to the story, help us to get out of our own lives, our own heads, to see the magnitude of this moment. Lord, we put it all in your hands. This is not something that I can do. This is only something you can do. In your name we pray. Amen. So our, our focus has been on this title, the Son of God, the Son of God, and what this really, really meant. Now, here's the odd thing about this title. People say this about Jesus, but I don't know if you know this, but this was not Jesus' preferred title or name for himself. Jesus did not actually refer to himself as the Son of God that many times. People said that about him. And actually, Jesus had another title very closely related to the Son of God, but it was a different title that he used for himself. So it's, it was Jesus' preferred title. So I don't know, when we talk about this concept, I feel like we have to respect that, that Jesus called himself something different than the Son of God. And you will see that the, the, the title that he, he gave to himself, it's not that different in terms of the words, but conceptually, it is hugely different. And it meant something very different than the Son of God. And the most important thing about this, it meant something very different to Jesus, which is why he preferred a different title. And the reason why this is important for us now is by understanding Jesus' preferred title, ultimately what it does, it helps us to understand Jesus. It helps us to understand him. It helps us to know Jesus more fully. Maybe God is like sending us a message or something. Someone check that. Who knows what's happening right now? <laughs> but what, what I want you guys to know about this title, it's a title that Jesus used for himself over 90 times in the Gospels. Over 90 times, Jesus refers to himself in this way. And this is the title. The title is Son of Man. Son of Man. So really similar. Son of God, Son of Man. What's that really about? One of the key things we've been trying to focus on is that this title of Son of God is not an ontological title, meaning it has nothing to do with his origins. It has everything to do with his purpose. You guys remember that? It's not really about where he's from and like his nature and his history, but it's about why he came to the earth. That's what Son of God is about. If you're confused by that, go check out part one and part two. But in part three, we're going to focus on this title that Jesus gives himself, Son of Man. Not gives himself, but refers to himself as Son of Man. And the goal for today is, what does it mean that, why, or let's put this on screen. The question is, why does Jesus call himself Son of Man? Why not Son of God? Why does he call himself the Son of Man? Real quick, the Son of God, as we talked about, was a covenant title. Right? Each covenant had an anchor and a starting point, and it was a person, and that person was called a Son of God. Right? David was the son of God, uh, only begotten son. Israel, the nation, Jesus, God calls him his son. So son of God was a covenant title. And so this indicates that Jesus was bringing in a new covenant, which we've all covered already, the final son of the final covenant that would, it, it, so to speak, like we talked about last week, would restore the timeline. Remember, he would bring oneness to the multiverse, so to speak, and create a path for those who would live according to his ways, to live a covenant 
life. The Son of Man is totally, completely different. So it has actually has very little to do with covenants. It has very little to do with like everything we talked about. But Jesus loved to call himself the Son of Man. So we got to understand this. So why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Now, the phrase Son of Man is not something Jesus made up. He didn't just come up with it and say, hey, guys, can you all start calling me Son of Man? Because that's lame, right? You can't give yourself your own nickname. You guys know that, right? Nicknames must be given to you. You can't give yourself your own nickname. Jesus did not come with it, come up with it. Son of Man is a figure, is a title that you see in the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is the name of a mysterious figure in the book of Daniel. They don't tell you who it is. They don't say it's Jesus. It doesn't give any, it doesn't give a description of what they look like and where they're from, but it is a specific person, mysterious figure from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel who comes in prophecy for a very specific reason, okay? And Ty Gibson says this about this title, the Son of Man, and this whole thing. He says this, if we fail to read the New Testament against the backdrop of Daniel, uh, the backdrop Daniel erects for us, we will inevitably reduce the gospel to a self-centered concern for personal salvation and a post-mortem heavenly home. You know what he says there? He says, if we think of the New Testament and the gospel in and of itself and we don't connect it to Daniel and the Old Testament, what it basically comes, ba- comes down to is like, I need a personal savior. I need a personal counselor. I need someone to hear my complaints and be there for me and make me feel good. And what it's really about for me is going to heaven. He says, if we, if we disconnect the two, it's very, he doesn't use these words, but I think we're getting to hear that. It's very self-centered. The gospel becomes very self-centered. It becomes about me and my need for a personal savior and the fact that I want to go to heaven. But isn't that what it kind of is for so many of us? Like, that's what it is, right? Like, the reason we became Christian, or if you weren't born into it, or the reason your parents was because of this, like, I want to go to heaven one day. Like, let's be honest, that's where it really came from. That's where it starts for a lot of people. And if that's where we are, I'm glad that you have a reason to believe, and, I, and if that works for you, I'm glad, but I want you to know that your understanding of the gospel and scripture is incomplete. And it is deeper, bigger, and far more beautiful. I'm not judging you for that, but I want you to understand that you are missing something so great, something really, really amazing. That's what I'm hoping we're gonna expand today for, uh, for all of us. See, it always was odd to me that the story of Jesus' life, Jesus, a man who was Completely other-centered, you know? He loved other people. He sacrificed himself for other people. He was all about everyone else. It's weird that the, the way or the religion or the church or the culture that came from it is one that is very self-centered and selfish. Doesn't that make, not make sense at all? Jesus was not that way, but we are. That's crazy to me. And maybe the reason is what we're talking about today because we have disconnected the story of the gospel, the theology of salvation from the greater picture of what God is doing in humanity. So hopefully you're interested, like what are we gonna talk about today? Because as we connect the two, we are going to see, as we connect Jesus with the, 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 the figure of the Son of Man, we're gonna realize that it's so much more is happening than just him trying to secure your heavenly home or be a personal savior 
to you. He is all of those things, but is, he is also so much more. Now, in order to understand the Son of Man and what's going on in the book of Daniel, we have to go back, and I have to lead you quickly through kind of the story of the people of Israel, right? So just stick with me. There's a key moment in the book of Genesis that we have to look to to understand what's really going on. And we talked about this Adam covenant, the Adamic covenant in Genesis chapter 1. And this, this moment where God enters into partnership, which that's covenant, partnership with Adam, and he sets up this situation. And I want to put that, 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 that verse on the screen. And we've read this, I think, every single time we've, in this series. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in other words, the partnership is God says, I made this wonderful world. Everything's great here. Now that I've built all this, you are in charge of it. And your goal is to make sure that this good world that I created stays good. That, that, that all the good things that are here in this world, you're going to allow it and cultivate it so that more good comes from it. That's our deal. That's our, that's our, that's our partnership. And the key word there is the word rule. Do you guys see that? He says, rule over the fish and the seas and the animals and everything. Rule. It was a, it's a word of power. Another way to think of rule is reign, right? And these are words of power that we often associate with kings. So in other words, Adam and Eve and subsequent humanity all throughout the ages was intended to, their covenant and their purpose was to rule over creation, was to reign over creation, to exercise power and authority over creation, okay? So that's a weird way to think about things, but I want you to think about this. When you hear the phrase, exercise power over something or someone, what thoughts and feelings come to mind? If someone were to exercise power and authority over you, does that make you feel good or does that make you feel bad? It makes us feel bad. If someone says to you, I will exercise power and authority over you, I bet there's a moment where you're going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? What does that really mean? Immediately, when someone is going to exercise power over you or dominion over you or reign over you, we have a very clear picture of what that looks like. And it looks like king and subject. King and subject. Ruler and the ruled. And if someone were to say that they will exercise power over you, you would automatically, I think, be suspicious. And you would question that. And you would wonder about that. And you say, well, well, what are you talking about? I feel like I would feel defensive. I would question them, like, who are you? Who says you get to exercise authority over me? What are you going to do? I would feel suspicious and defensive. I would not assume that the exercise of the power over me is for my benefit. If someone is going to be over you, exercise power over you, I think the assumption is you are going to exercise power over me for your benefit, not mine. And I am going to be a tool or I'm going to be used for your purposes. I will, I will wonder and be suspicious that they might take advantage of me. Now, when you read the, the covenant language in Genesis chapter 1 and God creates this partnership and he says, Adam and Eve, I want you to rule over creation, do you get that same feeling? Do you get the same feeling that God is telling Adam and Eve, I want you to rule over creation, I want you to use it for your benefit. I want you to use all this good stuff so that it can make everything better for your life. I feel like that's not the sense. The sense is like, 
it's good and pure and wonderful. Like, like Adam and Eve are supposed to do something really, really great as they exercise authority and power over creation. Now, here's the question. Why is it that when God tells Adam and Eve to rule over creation, it feels like a good, positive, wonderful thing, but when someone is going to rule over you, it's automatically a negative, uncomfortable thing? Why is it that when God says to rule over creation, the experience and the feeling is very different than what we would feel if someone were to rule over us? The answer is in what happened next. The reason why you and I view power and authority a certain way is because of what happened next. The reason why we view power and authority not in the way God views power and authority is because of what happened next. Because what happened next is Adam and Eve break the covenant. And they say, you know what? We don't want to do it your way. We want to break this agreement. We want to do the things that we want to do. We want to manage things the way we want to manage. We want to determine what's good, what's evil. We want to, we want to be in charge. And so they fall and they allow sin to enter into this world. And what we have to understand is in that moment, there was so much more going on than Adam and Eve making a mistake. You know, because I think some people have trouble with this. How, how come Adam and Eve, all they did was eat a fruit? Is it that really big of a deal? Why, why was that such a big deal? What we got to understand is there was so much more going on in this story. This is what Ty Gibson says. He says, the fall of mankind was therefore more than a moral fall. It was a governmental fall. Okay, let me read that one more time. The fall of mankind was therefore more than a moral fall. It was a governmental fall. You see, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, the decision they made was not just them making a bad decision, disobeying, disobeying in one moment. From a theological and spiritual perspective, the fall of Adam and Eve was the fall of humanity's rule over creation. It wasn't just like, oh, I ate the wrong fruit. I made a mistake. It was, it was a government and a power. It fell. In the, in the same way that a kingdom and empire would crumble, when Adam and Eve made that mistake, when they sinned, the humanity's reign, their kingdom over the earth that God gave to them, it crumbled and fell and was destroyed. And now it allowed place and space for a new kingdom to take its place. Like, it's not just a little mistake. He gave up. He surrendered. Adam and Eve surrendered their ownership and rule over humanity. And in effect, transferred the power over this world from humanity to Satan, theologically and biblically. This is why. Now, I don't know what you guys feel about Satan and the devil and all that stuff, but he's there, right? And this is what Jesus says about Satan, okay? Satan, the adversary. Satan, the enemy. Look at John chapter 12, verse 31. This is why he says this. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. He calls him the ruler of this world. Why? Because Adam and Eve gave them rulership, gave him rulership, gave him ownership, gave him power over this earth. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 30. Multiple times Jesus says, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but he's coming and he's the one that's going to kill me. He's the one that's going to murder me. And this verse next here is really, really important as we understand why this is significant and why we experience this every day, that Satan is a ruler of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. 
This is Paul talking. He says, in which you used to live, he's talking about sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he's talking about one time you were a sinful person and you followed the ways of this world and you followed the ruler of the air, ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, what does this mean? This is kind of a complicated, funny verse with weird words that we don't really uh, usually picture in Scripture and the way the words are put together. This does not mean that the devil or the Satan is in charge of oxygen or in charge of air or breath or the skies or anything like that. See, the, the concept of air in Scripture is closely connected to the concept idea of spirit. Air and spirit are very, very similar. And in fact, Paul uses both words, air and spirit, to communicate what Satan has done. What he's saying here is that the, the spirit of this world, the spirit of the world that we live in, the spirit of government, the spirit of power, is now influenced and inspired by Satan, not God. So what does this look like? This does not mean that, this is not referring to like dark, weird, scary, demonic kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying the spirit and culture of our secular world comes from the spirit of Satan himself, which is at the very deepest core level, a spirit of selfishness, a spirit of pride, and a spirit of power used for their purposes. So what he's saying is the reason our world, the reason our world, the reason the, our sense of power is is. We, something we're afraid of and that we question is because the powers that we've seen in this world exhibited through Satan is the spirit of this world. The culture of this world, the culture and spirit of this world is characterized by selfishness and pride. Like that's totally true, you know? If you think about kind of the, the condition of this world and, and us as well as we live and navigate life in this world, when we struggle, it's, it's about selfishness, it's about pride, it's about what I want, and, and, and that's what makes things so difficult. That's what could be could characterized as the source of so much trauma and so much pain is selfishness and pride. And the reason why that's there is because of what Adam and Eve did. Their failure in the garden was a transfer of power and transfer of ownership. And so Satan became the ruler of this world. So the reason why this idea of power exercised over us is uncomfortable and one that we reject is because the form and version of power we have seen in humanity has been influenced and inspired by Satan himself and not from God. And that's why when we think when God told Adam and Eve to exercise power over creation, we feel good about that. Because we know that God's version of power and authority is different from Satan's. But our world, the governments, the powers that be in our world are not from God. And that spirit of selfishness, pride, control, retaliation, and entitlement, those are what control the ethos and spirit of our world today, not love, compassion, empathy, and service. In other words, the systems of governance throughout history bear the image of Satan, not God. Right? And I know this is like crazy spiritual language and, and maybe you don't really think about this in, in, in those terms. And it's weird maybe like to talk about the devil and Satan in our world today. But just know that we're not talking about occult human sacrifice, like those weird scary things. We're talking about selfishness, pride, arrogance, self-centeredness, and oppression for the sake of, of doing what I want to do 
for myself. So what happens after the Garden of Eden is Cain kills Abel. And then from Genesis chapter 6 to verse, verse 8, chapter 6 to 8, you have violence as the main spirit and ethos of that world. Violence. And people are killing each other. People are hurting each other. So God has to bring the flood. And after the flood, you have this guy. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but there's this guy that comes on the scene in the, after the flood. His name is Nimrod. He's the great grandson of Noah. And listen to what it says about him. Genesis chapter 2. It says, Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Okay, so that sounds good, right? Heroic warrior on earth. Sounds good. What happened next? He built his kingdom, his kingdom. This is the first time there is someone's kingdom, not God's kingdom, his kingdom. He built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia and the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. What we have here is after the fall, in just a few generations, the first building of kingdom and empire set up by a great warrior and hunter. The beginnings of the Babylonian empire are right here. Power has been now redefined in just a few generations. And he's beginning to rule and reign not in the same way that Adam and Eve were supposed to rule and reign. So we're seeing the change and the shift happening in this world. So as we talked about, in this spirit, in this place, in this, in this new world, God is on the move and he starts to make covenants with people and he pulls people out of these kind of scenarios and these situations, these cultures, and he builds a partnership so he can build something new. A kingdom that is different than all those other kingdoms. It's not like Nimrod's kingdom. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It's not like any other kingdom. It's a different kingdom. He builds these, he through these partnerships and through these covenants, he's building a new kingdom that was supposed to look differently structurally and governmentally from all other nations. And I know that the, the, the thought that many of you have if you grew up in church is like, yeah, he was trying to build a kingdom without any king, right, where God is their king. That's true to a degree. Actually, what God was trying to build was even bigger and greater than that. It's actually more mind-blowing. And as I read it, you're going to be like, that's impossible for God to have done that. This is what Ty Gibson said. Remember, there was a verse that we talked about where when God looked at his people, he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. You guys remember that? Kingdom of priests. And then Peter uh, repeats that later. He says, you are supposed to be a royal priesthood. Remember? Listen to what Ty Gibson says. He says, with Israel, God was essentially seeking to establish a non-monarchical, so no king, community of covenantal love in which human beings could grow into their potential for what? Self-governance. What he's saying here is what God was trying to build was a community, a nation where they didn't need a king because they were growing in covenantal love just like their father and they would then be able to rule themselves in peace. Doesn't that sound impossible? Like that's, you can't do that. But why can't you do that is because of the sin in our world today. But with God, he was going to do that. See, when, when, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he didn't use a king, did he? He used a prophet. It was Moses. See, Israel was supposed to be governed, not ruled, by a system of prophets. 
where people are connected to God and sharing with one another the word of God and they would be growing and transforming to have the same kind of love that God has for them, they would have for each other. He says, in that world, in that society, people can govern themselves because people will share, people will sacrifice, people will love. That's the kind of nation God was trying to build. A, uh, instead of monarchy, he wanted them to have covenant. But as you know, if you, if you know some Bible history, they were like, now, now, let's have a king. We want a king. We want to be just like everyone else. And we want to wage war against other people just like everyone else. We, we want a king. They chose monarchy over covenant. They chose a system of earthly power over a system of covenantal love. So this brings us to Daniel now. So this world has been given over to Satan, the ruler of the world, the ruler of the air. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, power, oppression, reign supreme in this world. And you have superpower after superpower after superpower coming on the scene and conquering each other. You have Babylon come, they destroy everybody. And then they have a moment of weakness, then Persia comes and they destroy them, right? And then Persia has a weakness and then Greece comes, Alexander the Great comes and he's like, take that, pa, 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 they're all gone. And then the, the terrifying monster in Rome is, or in, in Daniel chapter seven is Rome. And Rome is like an empire no one has ever seen. And with more military might, more power, more aggression, more violence, they conquer the world. Like, that's how the world was working all throughout the, the ancient times. And then Daniel has this vision. In this, in this culture and setting of violence, this cycle of war, he has this vision. In Daniel chapter 7, this is what he sees. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Next verse. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Next verse. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms, like Rome, Babylon, all those people, under the whole heavens will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. What is he saying here? He's saying that the son of man, whoever this guy is, is going to come and bring an end to the cycle of violence. The son of man is going to come and his kingdom will be everlasting. Meaning no other kingdom is going to come. He is going to end the violence. He is going to end the, the, the powers waging war against other powers this cycle of oppression and military might conquering each other, the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to end all that. There's going to be no more. No more conquering. No more colonizing. No more conquest. No more empires. It's all over. The Son of Man is the one who's going to bring that. Someone will come and bring an end to this version of power and rule. His kingdom will end all kingdoms. But... His kingdom is different than every other kingdom. So you're thinking, if you're, if you're the initial reader, you're like, oh, okay. So there's going to be some mighty king, some powerful warrior who's going to come, and he's like going to come and destroy everybody, and everyone's going to be so scared, and no one's going to fight back. That's how he's going to end it. And then Daniel's like, no, 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 no. Check out this prophecy. Check out this vision. Let me tell you what this son of man is like. Let me tell you what this new kingdom is like. 
He says, look at what he's going to do in Daniel chapter 9. There's going to be a defining act and a defining moment for this ruler of this new kingdom. And this tells us what his kingdom will be like. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. After 62 sevens, don't worry about that. That's confusing. We can talk at a later date. The anointed one, who is the son of man, will be put to death and will have nothing. So that son of man, that king who's going to bring an end to everything, he's going to be put to death and will have nothing. Next verse. He will confirm a, and there's our word for the series, a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven. Again, if you're confused by that, we can talk later. And he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So from this moment, from this vision, we see that this king is different because this king is going to be killed. This king, this son of man, is not going to kill others. He will be killed himself. He will sacrifice himself for many. It's a totally different kind of kingdom. It's a totally different kind of power. He will confirm a covenant with his self-sacrificing love. That love, that self-sacrificing love that restores the timeline, that brings oneness to the multiverse. This is the Son of Man. This is what the Son of Man is going to do. End all the violence, but not do it with violence. Do it with love and sacrifice. That's the Son of Man. This is the key figure of Daniel. This is the person who's going to accomplish all of this. And this is the title Jesus says and gives to himself. So he's like, guys, I am the son of man. I'm the one that's going to end all the violence. I'm the one that's going to end all the war. I'm the one that's going to redefine power back to how power was originally supposed to be seen. I'm the one that's going to end all the oppression. I'm, gonna, I'm the one that's going to do all of that. And I'm going to do that, not with power and might, not with violence, but with love. With self-sacrificing, covenant, relational faithfulness, I'm going to change everything and bring an end to all the suffering. I am the son of man. And I want you to know that I'm going to say that about myself over 90 times in my life. Just so you never forget, that's how I see myself. That's crazy. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, understand what he is saying he believes about himself and why he is there. This is why in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, there's that mention of government. Remember, a son is given and his government, that's a weird word to have in a Christmas verse, but it's about that. When Jesus looked at himself in his ministry, it was the establishment of this new kingdom that rules in this very special way, this sacrificing, loving kind of way. And the birth of Christ is not just a biographical moment in his life. It's not just the starting point for whatever else he's going to do. This is what I want you guys to understand, the magnitude of this moment. When Jesus was born on this earth, it marked the theological, the spiritual, and even geopolitical revolution that was starting. It was not just the birth of an important person. It was the birth of a new kingdom that would eventually take place of all our systems of power and governance and replace it with one that is one of love and compassion and service and sacrifice. So that's why I'm saying we got to step back and realize there's a whole other story. There's a whole other framework when we see this birth story of Jesus. All of this is happening when this little baby was born. Because that baby was the son of God who would move forward the covenants to lead us back to covenant life, but he was also the son of man that marked the beginning of revolution. 
The arrival of this baby marked the beginning of the end of the ruler of the world, the current ruler of this world, whose spirit and influence corrupted and led our world to be one of coercive and oppressive power. The reason why you are uncomfortable with people exercising power over you is because the power that we've seen is from him. And Jesus comes as the son of man and says, I'm going to do, I'm going to make it all right again. And I'm going to rule like we're supposed to rule. And I'm going to create a kingdom that has power that is, is, is divine and compassionate and loving. And from the beginning, if you just look at his birth, you know Jesus was a different kind of king. He was a different kind of ruler. He was a different kind of important figure. And that was purposeful. There was a reason why Jesus came the way he did. To, to show us and reflect to us that he had a different kind of power. And he was always going to be very, very different than what everyone expected. Listen to what Gibson says on page 144 of his book. He says, the son of man isn't merely more powerful than other kings. He is more powerful with a fundamentally different kind of power. The kings that dominate the human landscape rule by sheer force of might, right? Jesus rules by sheer might of love. They take their places seated upon thrones. He takes his place nailed to a cross. This is why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Not because he's a very peaceful person. Not because he's like calm and reserved and relaxed all the time. He's not. If you read the gospel stories, there are times where Jesus gets really mad, flips over tables. It's like, that's not a very peaceful thing to do. But he's the prince of peace because his government will be one of love and peace. Because his transforming power and authority is not might and violence, but it is love and compassion. And so it makes sense that Jesus said what he says. And keep in mind this context of the Son of Man. What Jesus is really doing in this story. And the purpose of the Son of Man. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them together and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercised authority over them. Okay? Keep in mind the context of everything we're talking about. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but I've read this verse so many times, and this context changes the way I think about this and see this verse. Like, it's not just like, hey, be nice, love people, put other people first. He's like, no, 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 no. You know how power is now in this world. We're doing something completely different. I need you to get in line with that and put others first. Be a servant of all. And that's where the practical application of this message is. I don't know, like, for me, this is like, wow, this is so big. This is so huge. This is so much more than I ever knew about this story and what this title, the Son of Man. But to bring it down to a personal level, we asked these two questions the last two weeks. The first question was, how do you know God is love? And we said, the reason why you know God is love is not because of what happens to you, but because of his relational faithfulness all throughout history. After covenant, broken covenant, after broken covenant, he's never left us. That's how we know he's a God of love. And then lastly, we said, how much does God love you? How, do you? how much does God love you? And we said, the answer is God loves us so much that he would rewrite history, so to speak. That he would go back to restore the timeline so that he could be with us. The question, the personal question I have for you today that, that challenges a very basic understanding 
of, of, of that we know about Christianity is this question. Why are you, why are we commanded to love others? Right, that's like one of those basic things, right? You know, Christians should love people. Jesus tells us to love people. Why are we commanded to love other people? This is why. What we've talked about today is why. It's not because, or not only because, he just wants you to be really nice people. And he wants you to be really kind people. Yes, he absolutely wants that. But the stakes are far greater than just like, you were nice to this person this one day, and you were not nice to this person this other day. The stakes are far greater. We are commanded to love because when we love others like Jesus did, when we sacrifice and give, we contribute to the revolution. The transfer of power, the over, overturning of power, the revelation of power, the revolution of power that God brought forth with Jesus, when we love others, we are contributing to that. We are a part of that story. And in every single act of other-centeredness, we align ourselves with the Son of Man. In every sacrifice that we make for others, especially our enemies and those who don't know us, especially all the people that we don't want to love, when we are able to love them and sacrifice for them, what we are doing is we are declaring to the ruler of this world that we are not his and that we stand with the Son of Man. That's why we love. That's what Jesus did with his love. We are commanded to love others because love is the foundation, the operating principle, the spirit, and the spirit of Jesus' kingdom. And when we love, we are living in that kingdom. Every act of love, every transformation that moves us towards love is a way for us to participate in what Jesus is doing in this world at a cosmic earthly level. It's huge, guys. So like the, the challenge is really simple, but I hope the reason the motivation is different. Go and be loving to people, but understand why. Understand why. It's not so you can make them feel good. It's not even so that you can convert them. It is because you stand with Jesus. That's why you love. Because you say to the ruler of this world, you say, I'm not one of you. I'm not with you. Make no mistake. I don't belong to you. I belong with the Son of Man. That's why I love people. And that's why I love people in a way that is confusing. And that's why when they do things to me, it doesn't matter because I'm not about you. I'm not about treating other people a certain way so I can get something from them. No, I love people because I stand with Jesus. So this week, go and love somebody. I don't know, that's like, that's so simple and so basic and maybe you're wanting something different, but go and be a loving person this week. Go and be a loving person this season because you stand with Jesus, the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I hope, Father, that we, as we have explored a huge, huge, and for me a brand new idea that we may be willing to stand with you. That we may be willing to love others, not because we want to change them or because we want to impress them, but we love others because we stand with you, God, and no one else. That we declare to all that you are our king. And Father, we want to participate in building the kind of kingdom that you want to build. 
one of love and compassion, of service and sacrifice, where we are able to live in a wonderful community because we humbly go before you and we come before each other humbly, seeking to put others above us because that's what you did for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you so much that you are going to break the end of violence and war and pain and suffering in our world. That's who you are. Thank you. And I pray that you would help us and use us, Father, to those ends. We thank you, God, for coming to this earth and starting this brand new story for humanity. And I pray, God, that we may fall in line and that we may stand with you and walk in that every single day. Lord, give us people to love this week. And in those moments, help us to remember what you've called us to do today. In your name we pray. Amen.